why are we in this budget mess in the first place? Why are we having a special session? How short are we? People keep talking about a $215 million budget hole. Is that the hole? Because I think there's a case to make that it's significantly bigger than that. And why is that? Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, I'm your host, and new tonight, I've got a co-host. Hey everybody. Scott Nelson. Indeed. Thanks for letting me be here, Andy. I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a good time. We're going to have a lot of fun, hopefully talk about a lot of interesting stuff and see if maybe we can't uh, fix this. Right. Uh, Scott, you may have heard last week, is our vice president of the Let's Fix This board. Scott, you are very well prepared. You have stacks of paper on both sides of the mic. Uh, today. So this week, uh, we'll get down to it. I think in this episode, we're going to hit just a few kind of key things. One, uh, we actually talked, I did an interview with uh, Nicole, who's our board president, and get her perspective on things similar to our conversation last week. And you've known Nicole for a long time. Uh, Nicole and I go back a ways. Uh, At least my sophomore year of high school. I say my sophomore year because uh, Nicole, as I never hesitate to remind her is one year younger than me. Right. So we've been friends since I was a sophomore and she was a freshman attorney at law here in the city of Oklahoma City. So you've and been it, friends for 40 or 50 years. It feels like it sometimes. <laughs> it feels like it's probably, probably more so her than me. Right. So, um, so we'll talk to Nicole, uh, but then the big news this week, and this is where we can start and probably will, where we will end up, is this week kicked off the extraordinary... Legislative session of 2017. Hashtag special session. Right, yeah. So extraordinary apparently is the actual word for it. It was really funny uh, on Monday when Speaker McCall gaveled. I was in the in the House chamber when they gaveled in for it, and to hear him kind of uh, mutter that word a few times kind of made me chuckle. Oh, Speaker McCall. I've never heard him say the word extraordinary personally, but I imagine it would be in. He, I think whoever's speaking reads what they're, what they're saying because they go so quickly. It's oh, it's really, templated. Yes. It okay. Really hard. Uh, really hard to get. So, how uh, fast was he going? I mean, they were in session what, thirteen minutes on Wednesday. So, yeah. uh, so let's hit the highlights quick, and then we'll kind of get into it. So it's a special session, and they haven't done anything yet. Is that it? I mean, I think that's really the news <laughs> of the week. You know, the big news, big news a few weeks ago was that Governor Fallon had recalled the legislator to a special session specifically. It well, this was interesting to me um, because Governor Fallon. I think it's not known for emphasizing the need for more revenue, but I don't have the text in front of me, but I believe when she made the call for special sessions, she said specifically to address the budget hole that we're facing because the Supreme Court declared the cigarette uh, fee hashtag tax unconstitutional, but also the need for ongoing revenue, right? And then there was a third. Third is the teacher pay raise. That's right. That's right. Fix the budget hole. Find some recurring revenue and then find money for teacher pay raise if possible. So three is really dependent on two. Yeah, and and it looks like right now everything has kind of come down to a couple of measures thus far. So we're only a week in. The first few days they can't do anything. They have to just gavel in, say this is the first reading, and then gavel out. And the next day gavel in, this is the second reading, and gavel out. Because all bills have to be read, quote, read three times. And after the third time, 
Uh, and then they have to, after the third reading, is when they, is when they can on be voted on. Yeah. So, and that's mandated by the Constitution. That's not like a House rules thing. That's right. a, that's a constitutional, constitutional provision for the state of Oklahoma. Fact, fun fact for today. Did you know that when the Oklahoma state constitution was ratified, it was the longest governing document of any government in the world? I had heard that. Um, I, I have a copy... In fact, it's on our website, letsfixthisok.org. Uh, you can link to the, to the Constitution um, on the, the state government website. It is still lengthy. It's not, I guess it's not the longest anymore, but it's not still anymore. quite lengthy. Uh, it's, it's not short. Right. Um, we, and if you know it, there's uh, another fun fact. They, the Constitution enumerates the flashpoint of kerosene. Like They're very specific in some of the things. And the reason for that is that Oklahoma has always been pretty skeptical of government. Uh, we still are. We want to make sure that uh, those folks at the Capitol, wherever it is, do only what we allow them to do, no more, no less. And I think the our state um, founding fathers were a little skeptical or hesitant of what was going on in Washington. Oklahoma was kind of largely a socialist state early on, which is real funny considering where we're at now. And uh, so they wanted to make sure that they just spelled it all out for them there. It's really funny to me because I was reading this week, looking at, you know, kind of brushing up on the Ready Day Fund and some other measures about how uh, the legislature is mandated to uh, raise and use revenue by the Constitution. And you read some of these provisions and it's like, what What are you, my, what are you, my mom? Like, did, like, you have to save this much and you have to put it in this fund and you can only use it this way. I felt like I was... Uh, Back in junior high when I had my first job mowing lawns. <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing that's really interesting is that that, uh, that I think most people don't realize, and I have only started to learn kind of just the, the cusp of this, or just the edge of it, is that uh, most of the state budget is apportioned. So it's money off the top that is dictated where it goes, and the legislature doesn't get to do anything with that. Right. Uh, and so they, the part that we fight about is like a tiny little bit yeah. of the state budget, and that... I don't think most people realize that. We'll have some information about that coming out soon um, because I think that's the kind of stuff that is eye-opening to everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. So the two things that are really being negotiated this week, one is the tobacco tax, uh, an actual tax. We're actually calling it a tax now. Calling it like what it is. And then the second thing is the gross production tax, which is a tax on oil oil and gas, just oil? Uh, No, it's both. And that was something I... our hope is that we're going to kind of dive deep into what gross protection, gross production tax is, what it is, what it should be, who's calling for it to be increased and who's not. We're going to try to have a special guest next week that's going to help us kind of really explore that in depth. But for now, suffice it to say that gross production tax is a tax levied on the production of oil and natural gas um, that flows into state revenues that can then be appropriated by the legislature. Right, yeah, it's a pretty nuanced thing, and it's easy for all of us to say, oh, it's a tax on oil and gas, they've got big buildings and lots of money, let's tax them to death, um, let them pay their fair share, however you want to phrase it, but it is more nuanced than that. I think it's appropriate to bring up this week, though, because you know one of the things we're talking about today is kind of why... Why are we in a situation where, you know, there's an argument about revenue needing to be increased? And I think that that one um, kind of suggestion that's being put out there is that, no, it's not that there is a structural deficit or a problem with revenue in the government of the state of Oklahoma. It's simply that commodity prices, specifically oil and gas, 
natural gas, not the gasoline you buy at the pump, that oil and natural gas are currently being priced at such a level that we're just not generating the revenue that we used to. And that's really the problem. And I don't think that is the case. I think certainly that there are decreased revenues flowing into the coffers at 23rd and Lincoln because oil and that, you know, uh, crude oil is at um, what, like 50, $51 a barrel right now. I don't know the price of uh, MCF and natural gas off the top of my head, but certainly it's much lower than it was, you know, several years ago. However, I don't think that you can point to that and say, well, that's really the only problem. And that's an important point to make. And that plays into the role of the gross production tax because I think that there are there are some folks out there saying, oh no, you know, you can't you can't increase their taxes. The ta- their tax rate isn't the problem. The problem is what the commodities are trading at. And that's just a, a product of the market, and certainly that plays a role. But I don't think that you can argue that it's the sole cause or necessarily even the driving cause of why we're facing the big budget shortfall that we are. Yeah, market factors are a complex and complicated issue. Uh, we discussed. So I'm in school to get my master's in business administration, my MBA. And we kind of talked about that. And one of the things I didn't even realize is that the price of crude oil varies based on the play or the location where the where it's being drilled. So the price of, you know, like sweet Texas crude is different than the tech, the cost of oil being drilled up in uh, Kingfisher County right. or somewhere like that. So right. Like K County. Yeah, absolutely. There's at least three different markets for the price of crude oil. There's, I think... I don't work in oil and gas industry. Um, I'm just, I think it's it's sweet crude, West Texas crude, and there's international, I think, are the three. Um, if we have one of our listeners that would like to comment and correct me on that, you're more than welcome to. I like but I'm, we have a pediatrician giving oil and gas advice. <laughs> a pediatrician who lives in Oklahoma. Right, right. That's I mean, true. That's, Fair enough. A pediatrician who lives in Oklahoma. I know. I've heard that about roofing for the same reason. <laughs> you know? for a long time. Uh, but there's at least three different prices for, for crude oil, and, and they, they vary quite a bit and not only does the price kind of the price varies depending on which mechanism you which which price you are trading at but what's economical varies tremendously based on what play you're in um my understanding is that one of the reasons we're sitting at 50 right now is because opec uh, is keeping their production set at a certain level because the reservoirs in saudi arabia and the other countries that kind of control the opec cartel they can be profitable at a substantially lower price per barrel than a lot of the production that's happening in the continental U.S. right now. Sure. So they can, you know, they can drill and make a make a profit at fifty dollars a barrel because it costs them thirty. Whereas a lot of our producers that are in shale plays that require kind of more advanced technology and more infrastructure can't make the same profit at fifty that the OPEC countries can. Well, we're getting into the weeds quickly on and, the gas that we said we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> Um, so looking at the tobacco tax, so it's a dollar fifty per pack tobacco tax. It's virtually identical to the bill that was passed during the regular session in the spring, but that time they passed it and they called it a fee and it was ruled unconstitutional. So now they're just gonna do the same thing, but do it the right way. That's the idea. Why hasn't that happened this week? Well, that depends on who you ask. Uh, there was an editorial published by the Oklahoma Today that says uh, that the blame for failure to pass the cigarette tax rests solely with the Democratic caucus. Um, but they didn't vote on it. That's what I said. I actually put some stuff out on Twitter today asking this question. Why is it that blame rests solely with, with one side, not the other? The long and short of it is that because of state question 640, which was passed in 1991. 91, 92. 
91 or 92, somewhere somewhere in there. There was a state question passed that mandates that any tax increase in the state of Oklahoma has to be passed by three quarters of both houses of the state legislature or put to a vote of the people. That means that in the House of Representatives at 23rd and Lincoln right now, that requires 76 votes. Currently, the Republicans have 72 representatives and the Democrats have 28, I believe. And there are a certain number of both caucuses that are not willing to vote for this really under any circumstances. Um, Speaker McCall has said that he would deliver three quarters of his caucus to vote for this if the Democrats would deliver three quarters of their caucus to vote for it and it would pass um, no problem. So he says the fact that uh, the Democrats won't deliver three-fourths three of their caucus to pass the measure. The blame rests solely with them. I think the argument from the Democratic caucus would be that they are willing to pass a cigarette tax provided that there are other revenue measures passed along with it. I, th- I think that their position is passing the cigarette tax while addressing the immediate problem. And when I say immediate, I mean right now, today. The immediate funding issue that was created by the Supreme Court declaring the cigarette fee unconstitutional, that could be addressed by passing this again in a constitutional manner. However, the longer term ongoing ongoing problems that the state budget faces would not even be touched by that. And I think the Democrats are trying to push to address that in in more of a... Yeah, and I think my hunch is, and I haven't talked to uh, Scott Inman or really any of the Democrats... um, about this, but my hunch is that they are afraid that if they vote for the tobacco tax, that'll be it. That once that's done, right. they'll say, well, the rest will just cut and we'll be done. Right. And, and they won't, they'll lose out on the chance of finding any of those other two things. I, to go back, what the governor called them back for is to not just fill the hole, but to find recurring revenue and a teacher pay raise. Right. And I think there's a, my sense is there's a sentiment of like, you know what, if we can just like fill this hole, Let's call it a day and go home. Uh, and that's not, in my opinion, that's not enough for the state. Um, it's not what we need. And I think that's the sense I get from a lot of a lot of people kind of out there. So, Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the problems that we've seen in, certainly in recent sessions of the legislature, is that they, you know, they come into session on the, the first Monday in February every year, and they don't pass a budget until the last minute. I mean, we passed a budget at the last possible uh, second. We were having JCAB meetings at 10 o'clock at night in the last week of session this past spring, uh, debating over what this budget measure is going to look like. And I think that there is a group, honestly, I don't think from what I see on just social media and kind of talking to people and you know, trying to have my ear to the ground a little bit, I don't think that it's necessarily one caucus or the other in terms of Dems or Republicans. I think that there's a group of the legislator of legislatures that are saying, no, like, we need to start dealing with this. Then we need to start dealing with it not at 10 o'clock at night, not in the last week of session. We're here. Let's let's deal with it. Not just kind of try to put a the 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 barest of band-aids over over the the problem that we face and then not think about it again until February. Right. So today I um I saw that on Twitter both the governor and uh, I saw Senator David Holt both shared the same graphic. And I mentioned this, and today's Thursday that we were recording this, um, and when I was doing our little um, Budget Watch 2017 Facebook Live thing this afternoon, uh, I mentioned this as well, that uh, they both shared the same graphic that highlighted the actual dollar amounts and the percentages cut 
for a whole bunch of state agencies um, and kind of highlighted that we've cut a whole bunch. And I was uh, pretty surprised. I mean, uh, Senator Holt is a fairly uh, moderate. He's a very intelligent guy. Um, and the governor also, like, recognizing that, like, hey, we've already cut a lot of stuff. Now, now the governor has said that she will veto any, any budget plan that comes to her that includes cuts to state agencies. Do you think that'll actually happen? I think that is a very encouraging statement from <laughs> Governor Fallon. Uh, whether I, I, you know, as I recall, she made a pretty similar, similar statement yeah. uh, towards the end of last session, and that's not what happened. And you know, I, I appreciate that. A lot of a lot of the kind of key players here, meaning you know, uh, Leader Inman, who's the leader of the Minority Caucus, Speaker McCall, who's the Speaker of the House, the Pro Tem of the Senate, Senator Schultz, and Governor Fallon. You know, I appreciate that they do not find themselves in an easy position, and I also appreciate that, from my perspective, the situation we are in has been years in the making, and a lot of these people were not in government, certainly not at this level when the kind of initial the initial steps setting us down this road were taken. You know, we talked about that one of the arguments that's being put out there is that the only reason Oklahoma finds itself in such a kind of significant revenue position where we don't have enough coming in and we're having to to have debates about shrinking the budget and cutting agencies every year is because of the price of commodities. And certainly that plays a role. However, um, Oklahoma Policy Institute has a a, a really um, nice kind of analysis that they published in 2016, uh, where they talk about the cost of tax cuts, income tax cuts in the state of Oklahoma. So starting uh, in in 1990, at that time, there was a top rate of 7% for couples that were married filing jointly and with an income over $21,000 in the state of Oklahoma. And for singles, that was over $10,000. In 95 to 2003, the top rate came down to 6.65%. Um, but there was also a trigger to go back up to 7% if there was a budget shortfall. And that trigger came into play in 2002 and 2003. However, um, it was ultimately repealed by the legislature. From 2004 to 2007, the top rate was reduced again um, to down to 5.5% by 2009 with a trigger to cut to 5.25% in 2012. And then there was uh, another bill passed in 2014, Senate Bill 1246, that decreased the top rate to 5% with a trigger to go down to 4.85 by 2018. The legislature actually repealed that trigger, I think, last year? Yeah. Or was that this session? That was last year. Was it this session that they were that they repealed the trigger? So currently, our top rate sits at 5%, uh, and that's applied to uh, income over 12000 for married filing jointly or 7200 for an individual. Any idea... Drum roll, please. What the total cost of those tax cuts annually is to the state of Oklahoma, to the government, to the revenue flowing into the government's coffers? My guess is $11 billion. It's not quite $11 billion. Not quite $11 billion. <laughs> However, uh, the number is big enough that I think um, if 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 we had any money and it could could afford the rights to like the Dr. Evil music from Austin Powers, it would be appropriate right here. Right. Um, the estimate annual cost is $1.022 billion. That's a lot of money. Annually. That's not cumulative. So That's a billion dollars a year. A billion dollars right. a year that have come from reducing the top rate from 7% to 5%. And those tax cuts came out to like 
$37 a person for most people. I think for most wage earners like myself um, that are kind of middle income folks, it was not noticeable. Right. I think that's one of the arguments that's, that gets kind of put out routinely about some of these tax cuts and, you know, why, you know, they don't necessarily, I, I, there's a lot of argument both at the local level and nationally about, oh, this is a tax cut for the quote unquote wealthy, not a tax cut for the quote unquote middle class. And the argument that was put forth at the time for why this was a tax cut that would benefit wage earners across the board, no matter what your income level was, is because the threshold is so low, right? Because it applies to married filing jointly couples of $12,000 or more or an individual of $7,200 annually. Well, if you have an income in the range of $250,000 or more, that tax cut's going to save you like ten dollars or $15,000 a year. However, if, like 20% of Oklahomans, your household income is under $20,000, that's going to save you, wait for it, drumroll please, $4 a year. <laughs> that's way lower than I expected. So I do like that as, uh, as a faithful listener to the West Wing Weekly, as I know you are, I definitely feel like Josh Molina in this situation and you are Rishi, where you have like ample data and notes taken, and I'm trying just to wing it here. So thanks for that. I mean... I like to read, you know, and and I'm 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 definitely kind of a nerd at heart, and so the opportunity to nerd out over the state budget for a purpose, it's I mean it's kind of my dream. It's I've got to be honest, true. it really is. Uh, let's uh, transition a little bit to a discussion of uh, that rural versus urban divide, just for a few minutes. So last weekend, uh, I went to Enid, Oklahoma, for a info and training session. So we do those. Uh, around the state. We've done them around the metro for the last year or so. We're trying to expand and do some in other parts of the state. So we went to Enid first uh, because one of our kind of uh, supporters uh, lives in Enid and said, hey, come here. There's a lot of folks who would love this information. I think it'd be great. So we went. Uh, Representative Chad Caldwell showed up. Uh, He came as well. He moved some things around. We really appreciate him coming and we hope to have him on in a future episode to discuss like how the state budget and how all this stuff factors into uh, to the rural-urban divide and, and what the economic issues are and what the other issues are that look so different in those areas. Before we started recording, we were kind of chatting about this, um, and I what I was going to say then is that driving from Oklahoma City to Enid, it's a beautiful drive, first of all, uh, and I forget that when you get out of town just an hour or so, there are two industries. There's oil and gas and there's agriculture. Absolutely. And that's about it. Absolutely. I mean, the entire hour and a half drive from here to Enid is ag fields mm-hmm. sprinkled with oil and gas wells. And so it, I mean, we weren't that far out of town before I, I was refreshed and in, in like reminding myself of what that feels like. Like things just feel different. Life feels different mm-hmm. um, outside of kind of the bubble here. Um, no, I think you're right. I think it's easy to forget. I live, you know, in Oklahoma City. Um, my wife and I live in the kind of between uh, Midtown and Uptown Twenty Third. In the bubble. Uh, in the bubble, smack dab in the middle of the bubble, um, and we we like it. It's a nice bubble. Um, it fits well for kind of where we are in life and things that we like to do. But it certainly is easy to forget that. When you look at the state as a whole, we are dominated by three industries, right? We've got agriculture, oil and gas, and healthcare. Like those are the big three. And it's been that way for a long time. I think that the state 
you know, I think it would behoove us to kind of start diversifying for another reason, for a number of reasons. But there's no question that once you get out of kind of the urban core of Oklahoma City and the urban core of Tulsa, that's what you see. And I think it's very easy for me as someone who lives near downtown. Um, I work in healthcare, so I don't forget about that one. But it's certainly very easy to forget how dominant those two industries are once you're no longer in the urban core. And I think that it's, you know, certainly, I, I don't want to speak for anyone who lives kind of outside of the Oklahoma City Metro and presume to know what they think because I don't live there and I don't know. But I would imagine that when you hear people talking about increases on things like the gross production tax, increases on things like the income tax, when you talk about looking at agricultural subsidies, whether that's at the federal level or or the state level, it's probably very easy to hear that as an attack on what is for a lot of people very much a way of life, not only for them, but for most of the people that they know and for most of the people that have lived in their town for years, if not decades. Yeah. I What I was struck with while I was driving, we were kind of quiet and you had the radio on and um, just kind of watching the you know the passing of crops as we drive. Um, and the thing that, that I was reminded of is for so many families, I think, in these areas and um, that maybe um, you know, to paint with a broad brush, the husband works in oil and gas and maybe his wife is a teacher or a nurse and works in healthcare. Like I drove past the, uh, the Integris facility in Enid. And so like recognizing that well, I think our state is faced with this like double edged sword that if we either cut oil and gas and potentially reduce the salaries or reduce the number of jobs for oil and gas, which in many cases is the chief wage earner for these families, or we don't, um, we don't tax them higher and thus that forces us to cut education or cut health care and so that the other wage earner in the home loses that uh, and so like really either way we're kind of stuck in this position that could be just hurt like regular everyday Oklahomans like right in the gut right no I think you're right I mean I think that absolutely is the dilemma and I think it's important that you bring that up because I think it is certainly easy, you know, you mentioned earlier, like it's easy, you know, to look at oil and gas and think, oh, they have these, you know, they have these big shiny buildings and, you know, they got this big, beautiful campus and they built a new tower and, you know, their CEO makes this or, you know, their board compensation is, is that. And it's easy to forget that, you know, those, you know, those things or those people, those salaries, those numbers, however you want to look at it don't represent the majority of people who work in that Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that I would hope our legislature does as they're having these conversations that occur between the majority, the minority, the governor's office, and, you know, kind of the other parties that are involved in these negotiations is to reach out and have those conversations. You know, I think it's important that if you're a legislator from Oklahoma City, and you know, Metro, certainly you have to listen to your constituents, but you also have to be mindful of, you know, your colleagues who represent more rural areas, what they're hearing, and vice versa. I think that's part of the way government is supposed to work. You know, I would hope that our legislators have the kind of relationships where, you know, a representative from the metro could go to a representative from a more rural area and say, hey man, this is really what I'm hearing from my people, and this is the pressure that I'm faced with, and this is what, you know, this is what I 
am held accountable to. Um, and then, you know, the rep from the rural area says, I hear you. I hear you. That's, I hear you. But this, but this is what I'm hearing. But I think that part of their responsibility, and this is sometimes I think something that, I, I mean, I don't want to say that it's, I don't want to say it's lacking, but I think one thing that maybe doesn't happen as often as it could is for our reps to come back to us you know, and whether it's me holding the pitchfork saying, why are we raising the GPT? Or, you know, folks in a more rural part of the state saying, why on earth would you raise the GPT? You're going to kill my job to have that conversation and say, hey, we're one state. We're all in this together. And raising the GPT has implications for you, but not raising it has implications for all of these people. Mm-hmm. And we need to hear in the Metro that not raising the GPT certainly has implications here. But raising it has all these implications. Right. In other areas. Elsewhere. We're all in this together and we are going to have to work together. And I think that our I think that our representatives at 23rd and Lincoln need to know that working together is what we want them to do. Yeah. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we will uh, talk with uh, Nicole Moissant-Gillette our board president from Let's Fix This, about how she went from someone who was not involved in politics at all to someone who's the uh, uh, who's the president of our board and uh, involved in this day-to-day. And we'll also um, hear the audio from my conversations with a couple of advocates at the Capitol this week. Do you think people know that she makes us call her Madam President? <laughs> special session starting this week, I traveled to the Capitol during my lunch break on a couple of days to see who was around, what kind of regular everyday folks, what kind of advocates were up there, and get a sense for the general feel for what to expect this special session. While there, I ran into a couple of familiar faces and had a chance to visit with them about their expectations and their hopes for the special session. My name is Kara Joy McKee, and I am the coordinator of the Together Oklahoma Coalition. So I've known Kara Joy for a couple of years now, and I saw her in the rotunda of the Capitol up on the fifth floor balcony, kind of overlooking the fourth floor, which is where most of the action happens. She was at a table uh, waiting for other advocates from Together Oklahoma to come by and get some instructions or relay some information about what they were hearing from their representatives uh, and their senators from across the state. And I thought she would be an excellent person uh, who's at the Capitol pretty often to give us some predictions or some uh, expectations for the special session. Well, it is the kickoff. I think we're feeling a little kicked. Um, So far, not a lot of action. The bills that have been filed, we've been disappointed, but not surprised that most of the bills don't seem to have much in the way of substantive revenues. It's the same little nickel and diming that they were doing at the end of session. The hopeful view is that there's a bunch of shell bills. We don't know what's going to be in those shell bills, and they could look at some of those real recurring revenues that we want. I mean, in the capital gains tax exemption, why not? Other states have ended it. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, the big, the big issue that I hear from most advocates is that they want to restore the gross production tax on oil and, oil and gas. And again, at the end of session, we were hearing legislators on both sides of the aisle saying they were completely comfortable with going up to 5%. We're still hearing that House leadership, at least, is not interested in putting that on the table. 
It seems pretty clear that even on the very first day of the special session, the issues of the tobacco tax and the gross production tax were going to be dominating the news cycle. I asked Kara Joy how long she thought this session might last. I think we can bet on them being done by October 13th because they'll turn off the lights in the Capitol at that point. Governor Fallon could invite them all over to the governor's mansion. I don't think she's going to. In spite of the uncertainty surrounding the special session, some people like Kara Joy still have a little bit of hope for what might happen in the next few weeks. I'm not sure what they're going to do because they can they can make up their own rules as they go along. A lot of it depends on what happens here. We're seeing advocates coming out to the Capitol. I think if we get a big outpouring of support from people all over the state, then we will see some action. Um, I think there's a lot of it down to us. And if we don't, if it's just the highly paid lobbyists and a small handful of us up here at the Capitol, I think it'll be more kicking the can down the road. A few days later, I stopped by the Capitol again and ran into another familiar face. Trent Rattery, board member of Let's Fix This and grad student uh, among many other titles, I guess. Apparently, both Trent and I had the same idea to stop by the Capitol on our lunch break and try to snag our legislators for a quick conversation. I'm up here in the capacity of just a concerned citizen. It just seems like uh, this continued trend of uh, throwing our hands up and not and pretending like there's not solutions out there is going to lead to I mean uh, right now you know there's program cuts and there's stuff like that but eventually it's going to be people losing their job and their an economy can't exist if people lose their jobs Trent's been around the Capitol for a couple of years and usually has a pretty good sense of how things are going, so I really wanted to get his thoughts on what we should expect for the next few weeks as well. This is in my humble opinion, I guess, Um, but it seems like there's three ways it could go. Um, I mean, there's there's no agreement can be met, can be made, and catastrophic cuts. Uh, You know, maybe the agreement is just made around cigarette tax and there's still significant cuts. And then I think the last option is maybe if the majority party can throw a bone to the Democrats and get some type of agreement or some type of compromise on gross production tax or the high income surcharge, then I think the cigarette tax would come and the revenues would be at least back to the $215 million gap. So. I think one of those three, one of them, the one, obviously with both parties working together, that's the optimal option, I think, in my opinion. But it seems like maybe at this point with press conferences today, maybe that option is kind of drifting farther away. But hope, I mean, I, I, I have hope that I think that they'll see the light and work it out. And so... As the first week of the 2017 extraordinary session of the Oklahoma legislature draws to a close, it seems that no one is really sure what's going to happen. If there's one theme that stood out from my conversations with Carajoy, Trent, and other people at the Capitol this week, it's that they're hopeful that we, the people, still do have a voice in this, and that if we just continue to speak up and speak out, if we continue to contact our legislators and let them know where we stand on these issues, that we might have a chance of bringing these two parties together and finding a 
compromise, and a reasonable solution to fund our state for the future. Also this week, I sat down with Nicole Moissant-Gillette, who is the current board president for Let's Fix This. Hey, Nicole, thanks for sitting down with me. Uh, How did you get involved with Let's Fix This? I found Let's Fix This on social media. Um, Primarily, I kind of started seeing the Twitter post, and then I went over to the Facebook post, and it was one of those organizations that all their posts seemed to align with what I wanted to be doing. And their invitations to events were all events that I wanted to go to. Um, And so I just kind of, you know, found events that I was able to go to, put them on my calendar, and then um, started hanging out with the Let's Fix It crew. What was the first event that you came to? Do you remember? I don't. It was a capital day. um, And I was there very briefly because I went before another meeting. And so I was in and out, and I went and I met my rep and then left. (laughs) Um, But it was one of those, it was the first time I had actually met my rep face-to-face. Um, and just because I had an outlook, I guess, an in to do that, um, was really what made Let's Fix It applicable to my life, I guess. Sure. Were you politically involved before you started doing this stuff? I wouldn't consider myself politically involved. I was a political follower. Um, I would follow it. I would critique it. I would post ragey Facebook, uh, ragey, uh, Facebook post about it, but I didn't actually engage very much. I would go do elections, um, every once in a while I'd send an email to my representative, but that was it. You know, I got really involved in election season, and then once my representative was elected, I almost had a hands-off approach, which was you're elected and you're going to do what you're going to do. Um, and then when I found Let's Fix It, which really opened the door to, hey, let's engage now that you're an elected official and now that you are making these decisions. And that's that's when I said, okay, let's let's do this better. <laughs> sure. So you went from, I like that you said, ragey Facebook uh, posts. You went from that to going beyond the ballot box and having those conversations. How has that changed your relationship with your, with your legislators and maybe your relationship to state politics? Right. So what I found out um, is that not everyone thinks the way that I do. Um, <laughs> and uh, I realized that, you know, I would get really revved up and fired up about some of these bills that were being introduced and some of these bills that were getting passed because they affected my personal life and they affected my professional life. And I would go out and grab drinks with friends, and we were all in very different um, professions. And I would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they passed Bill X, Y, and Z. And then someone who's in a different profession would say, I don't even care about X, Y, and Z. What I'm really concerned about is A, B, and C. And it made me realize that we all have different interests because these bills affect our daily lives in different ways. There are some things that do not affect me. Um, I have no idea how to legislate them. I have no idea how to govern them. But my friends do. And then I thought about that from the perspective of our legislators and the fact that they have 1,200 bills that come across their desk, and they may not be resident experts on oil and gas and water rights and tax law and education and criminal justice. And we expect them to make these very informed decisions without having necessarily the day-to-day experience in that specific area. And so what Let's Fix This has allowed me to do is take the bills that I am incredibly passionate about, um, the areas that affect my my professional life and my personal life, and go in and say, hey, this bill is in front of you, and let me tell you how it's going to affect my life in an everyday way. Or let me tell you, you know, these are the pros that I see because I deal with this every day, and these are the cons that I see. And so even if my legislator doesn't necessarily 
align with me politically, they at least have a story that says, this is one of the stories that I heard from a constituent that says, maybe this bill isn't perfect, maybe we need to, you know, make it a little bit better. Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's what we hear from legislators all the time, is that those personal stories are really what helps them understand, because there's no way they can know all the ins and outs of all these issues, and so having people from the outside come in and say, hey, I actually live here, and this matters to me, can make a big difference. What was it like for you that first time that you went into their office? It wasn't as scary as I thought. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a little bit of, it was almost a stranger danger in a way, just because I didn't know this person. And, you know, he'd been elected, and I didn't know him. And I'm coming in, and I'm wanting to share, you know, intimate details of my professional life as to these are the people that I serve, and these are the problems that they're facing. And trying to, you know, kind of have that common ground. Um and it turns out our representatives are real people. Um, and, you know, you can go in and you can have a conversation with them. And granted, they're professionals. And when you go in and you see them in their office, you know, they're at work. And there are certain things that they've got to do. But they're usually really able to kind of carve out some time. Or if they can't carve out time at that specific time, they'll let you set up another time. Or you can do an email correspondence. I'm really great at emailing with my um, rep where I'll say, hey, this bill's on your desk. And these are, you know, the five bullet points that I have on it. Let me know if you want to talk about it in depth. And then he'll say, man, this is great information. Thank you so much. And then we can set up an email for later or even an in-person conversation. Sure. That's great. That's actually a good reminder that I need to email my reps. I tried to, um, I was up there yesterday and tried to uh, sit down with them and uh, they're busy and I couldn't stick around all day. So I should have called in advance and scheduled an appointment. Uh, Nicole, if you could, maybe there's any listeners who are thinking about getting involved and they are nervous or scared or hesitant what advice would you have for them? You know, I'm a big believer in kind of that strength and numbers thing. And one of the things I think Let's Fix This does is it gives you a group to go with. You know, I'm the person who I hesitate to go to a party by myself because I don't want to be the person just hanging out by the punch bowl. And But Let's Fix This, you're going to have people who are going to say, hey, do you know who your rep is? Hey, let me show you how to get a hold of them. And there's kind of that strength in numbers. You're, you've got a buddy system that's built in with Let's Fix This. Um, and then if you don't want a buddy, then they can say, hey, here you go. And, you know, see you when we, you know, see you when you get back. Um, and so that's just, that's really, really comforting. Um, I think figuring out what motivates you to get to the Capitol. Um, you know, is there a certain policy that you're saying, yes, we need to absolutely get this done or no way in God's green earth does this need to happen and figure out what you want to talk about. Um, getting that for me, getting that initial thought of, Hey, I want to talk about a, and then getting to my rep and saying, Oh, by the way, let's talk about B, C, D, E, and F. Um, just kind of having that organization. And I think one of the great things Let's Fix This does is it helps you create that organization. And it says, okay, you want to talk to your rep? Here's how you do it. Here's, you know, what they want to hear. Here's kind of some bullet points as to how to make that happen. And so you can go in without ever talking to your rep, without ever, you know, even engaging in any kind of conversation like that. And Let's Fix This is going to help you start that conversation and give you the tools necessary to do it. Sure. What's the most surprising thing you've learned from going to the Capitol? Oh gosh. I think the most surprising thing that I've, I've seen is that there are some politics involved. Um, you know, there's part of me that kind of goes in with rose-tinted glasses and says, you know, here's what's right, here's what's just, and then here's what needs to happen. But there's a whole other side that I've, I've blocked out, honestly. And there are people who are on the other side of issues that, because I don't align with them, I sometimes block out that train of thought. And these representatives often have people coming at them from both sides and saying, you know, this is great or this is terrible, and they've got to make that decision. 
Um, and you know, legislators, they're peoples and they're professionals, and so they have some guidance that they have from their party leadership. Um, but I've been very impressed and encouraged by the fact that when they say, hearing from my actual constituents makes a big difference, and it makes it so that I want to go to bat for my constituents instead of, you know, we make a decision, we pass a bill, and then all of a sudden we get hate mail. That doesn't do me any good because I can't go, I can't go to bat on that if it's already been done. So them wanting to hear from constituents, them um, taking to heart those stories and taking notes and saying, I'm going to talk about this when I go to committee, or I'm going to talk about this when we go to our, you know, our party meeting. Um, knowing that they are receptive to those ideas has been incredibly surprising and encouraging. Great. That's actually really, that's really encouraging. I think even for me to hear that um, people are surprised and, and excited um, by the fact that they are open and accommodating and interested in what we have to say. Uh, if you could maybe give a couple of recommendations or hints or tips um, to people for interacting with the legislature, um, either going to the Capitol or emails or phone calls, whatever, um, what's your like top three insider tips? I would say, you know, give as much notice as possible that you want to interact with them. Um, we have some legislators who I think are fabulous at social media, um, and they'll interact with you on Facebook, or they'll interact with you on Twitter, or they'll interact with you on email. And if your representative isn't one of those people, they have staff in their office who will literally answer the phone. You can say, I really want to have a meeting with this person. How can I get on their schedule? Um, and so, you know, giving notice so that you're not getting, so that they're not getting surprised by constituents helps make sure that you make that meeting happen. Um, that was, if I can interject, that was my issue yesterday was that I didn't plan ahead. And so I just called from inside the Capitol and said, hey, any chance that um, she's got some time today? And her assistant was like, uh, no, <laughs> there's, an, which I get if it had been the other way, she'd come to my office, there's a good chance I might not have been able to squeeze her in either on certain days. It's busy, you know that. And so, um, so yeah, giving them ample notice, we're all busy. You can't just pop in and expect to interrupt someone's work day. Right. Um, and then I think the way that we, we present our concerns, um, the way that I found us the most successful is I give them this is what I want to happen. This is the result that I'm hoping for. And it's if it's in an email or if it's in a letter, it's a very short, you know, I want you to vote yes or I want you to vote no. And then I give them the story and then I ask them again, please vote yes, please vote no. But that way, when they're overwhelmed with letters and they're overwhelmed with the number of pieces of legislation on their desk, they see it and they say, okay, what is this person wanting me to do? They're wanting me to vote yes, they're wanting me to vote no. And their staff will sometimes just keep a checklist of the numbers of yeses versus the number of noes and just give that number to them. And so I found that when I hide my request, you know, four paragraphs down, it kind of gets lost. Make it very clear and just put it at the very top. This is what I'm asking you to do, and then here's why I'm asking you to do it. Right. And a personal, personally written email, not just a form email, but say yes. like, hey, this is actually from me as a person. Yes. Which gives you time to think through what you're going to say and stuff as well. For sure. I mean, I know that I've had certain stuff where, you know, I see it's popping up and I see that it's going to vote and I'll just write a very quick email. Hey, this is how I want you to vote. Hey, here's why. Um, thank you for your time. And then there's some other ones where I say, here's this, you know, six paragraph long story about how this specific bill is going to affect people. Um, and, you know, I've gotten responses for both of them and they're just like, thank you for corresponding. Thank you so much for letting me know. It gives me something to go in and talk about in our discussions. Mm -hmm. And if you ever sit in on session, you will notice that many of the legislators are on their phones on the House floor or the Senate floor, um, which isn't always disrespectful. Some of the, I think, pomp and circumstance of being in legislature, they've got to do a bunch of 
parliamentary things that are just time consuming. So they're sitting there um, reading announcements or whatever, and they will, like we all do, maybe check email during a meeting, and that gives them a chance to catch up on some of that stuff, and they, that's often helpful, I think. So. Yeah, I, I can tell you that there have been legislators that, you know, we've sat there and tweeted with them while they've been on the floor. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh my gosh, we have strong feelings about X, Y, and Z. Okay, got it. Um, and it, technology has made it so that interacting with our legislators is so much easier. Um, you know, they're not in this ivory tower um, over on 23rd Lincoln. They are, they're accessible and we can use different kinds of methods to get to them at this point. That's right. And we should. We should. <laughs> uh, Nicole, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Big thanks to our guests, Kara Joy McKee, Trent Rattery, and Nicole Monson-Gillette. And for my co-host, his first week with us, Scott Nelson. You can follow Scott at S.C. Nelson. It's M-E-L-S-O-N on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Andy OKC. And you can follow us, Let's Fix This, on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This OK. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This OK. And you can sign up for our newsletter, uh, read our blog, check out other pictures and stuff on our website at letsfixthisok.org. Our podcast is edited and produced by myself, Scott, and mostly homeless media. And our theme music is generously provided by local heroes, your friends and mine, the Sugar Free All Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Thank you.